It's August 15, 1649, and Oliver Cromwell is landing a force of 35 ships in Dublin, Ireland. The king has been dead for eight months, and now Cromwell, the once obscure backbench MP from Huntington, had risen to a position of almost supreme prominence in the new parliamentary government. Though a fighter for the supposed liberties of Englishmen, the next decade would test what those liberties actually meant in a nation without a sovereign and without a social base to secure them. And so one of his first major actions is to travel across the Irish Sea to crush dissent with extreme prejudice. It's May 25th, 1660, and Charles II Stuart, the near-destitute, vice-addled son of the late Charles I, arrives by boat in Dover. After years of exile on the continent, hunted by the English, shunned by his European royal peers, Charles had, amazingly, been invited back to England to be king. The experiment of the Commonwealth had collapsed in disarray, and conservative elements of the Parliament had had enough with this Republican experiment. It was time for a restoration of the true, God-divined order of the kingdom. It's November 5th, 1688, and Prince William III of Orange, husband of Mary II Stuart, Stadtholder of Holland, disembarks on the English shore at Brixham in County Devon, accompanied by as many as 15,000 men, over 20 24-pound cannons, and weapons to arm another 20,000 volunteers. The Dutch prince would slowly advance towards London. One final revolution would soon take place, completing the cycle of English instability and tying their dramatic upheaval to the dramatic events of the continent a generation before. Beginning with the Scottish Bishops' War in 1637, every component of the Stuart Triple Monarchy rebelled against Charles's attempt to impose a unified religious and civic administration. From the Scottish Covenanters to disaffected gentry and merchant English parliamentarians to Irish Catholics of all classes, people across the realm had taken up arms to protect what they saw as their communal and individual rights in the face of encroaching absolutism. But in the process of fighting for those rights, they created a military and fiscal state capable of overawing the British Isles in a way Charles could never have dreamed of. Taxes far in excess of anything Charles sought to impose became permanent fixtures of British life, including one assessment that was imposed on the same basis as ship money. <laughs> Catholic ownership of land in Ireland went from 60% at the start of the rebellion to 20% after its suppression. Scotland's civic administration was finally suborned to the London bureaucracy, and the Kirk finally assimilated into the Anglican communion. What this machinery lacked was a governing structure with popular legitimacy. When the Stuarts reclaimed the throne, it was a position of vastly reduced personal power, representing a social and economic force beyond their ability to comprehend. The Stuarts' inability to recognize this changing landscape would lead the dynasty to be outstripped once more and for good. These three landings I described above give shape to the four decades of English history following the death of Charles I. And through this period, the English will grope in the darkness for a political and social formation that will accommodate their shifting nation. What they will find, with a little help of our old friends the Dutch, will eventually conquer the world. Here we are, one last time, back to January 1649. The king was dead, 
Long live... Uh, the exceedingly small group of parliamentarians now left in the positions of authority, remember just 59 men had signed Charles's death warrant, had severed centuries of state structure, authority, and legal precedence along with the king's head. They had opened a Pandora's box and lacked any kind of context to answer the questions that spilled out of it. To understand the social and political conditions the parliamentarians found themselves in, we should first take a look at the interplay between Parliament and the New Model Army, which at the end of the war was the glue through rule of force holding this whole thing together. And to do that, we have to go back to 1647 to look at the social base of the army through the Putney debates. We mentioned this uh, in passing last episode. Now we're getting into it for real. After the New Model Army's victory in the first civil war at the Battle of Naseby in June 1647, the general assumption was that a settlement would be negotiated with Charles to restore him to the throne with new conditions and limitations. The settlement proposed by the lead army commanders, known as the Grandees, who included Fairfax and Cromwell, was a fairly moderate list that failed to account for the army's enormous back pay owed to them or potential amnesty for the soldiers. This led to a protest movement of more radical elements within the army and a debate between the grandees and the elected representatives of the soldiers called agitators. Uh, This debate was scheduled for that October. So Matt, tell us about the Putney debates, the social base of the army, and where that gets us for the men who ended up leading parliament after they killed Charles. Unlike the peasant levies or mercenaries of previous English armies, the troops of the New Model Army were largely volunteers committed mm-hmm. ideologically to the roundhead cause. By the way, that's what they called the parliamentarians. They called them roundheads because they had embarrassing pumpkin-shaped haircuts. <laughs> like valiant, very just bad look. Uh, they came from all classes and parts of English society. They were issued Bibles and parliamentary catechisms when they signed up. The self-denying ordinance had cleared out the political generals, creating a fully professionalized fighting force based around a common political purpose. Or so they had thought at first. Once the king was in custody and the question of what the post-war government would look like came into focus, many new model army soldiers began to talk to each other about what they wanted out of governance. It became quickly clear that their hopes were not the same as those of the Presbyterian parliamentary merchants and landowners who had gone to war with the king to defend what they saw as God-given privileges. But the soldiers, thrust into communal camp life, fired by what they had read and experienced during the war, began to articulate a more radical vision. They had not fought and suffered and seen friends die to return to a world where one's rights were proportional to one's property. To that end, agitators within the army began organizing around a list of demands, including the end of the monarchy, the dissolution of parliament to be replaced by a single legislative body to be elected by universal manhood suffrage every two years. This chamber would be tasked with enshrining and defending certain rights, including the free exercise of religion and freedom from conscription, as well as writing a permanent constitution for the country. These demands were published in a pamphlet that, was, that also insisted on the army's right to enforce the demands if parliament proved unwilling to meet them. It's remarkable to what extent these demands from the army are familiar to those steeped in American history. The leaders of the army, the grandees, were hot to neutralize this potential rebellion within the rebellion. So in October of 1647, Oliver Cromwell and his commissioners met an assembly of army representatives at Putney near London. From October 28th to November 8th, the agitators and officers of the new model army debated the radical proposals. Cromwell refused to consider any government that did not have the king at its head. (laughs) And Henry Ireton, Cromwell's son-in-law, bridled at the suggestion of a near-universal suffrage as tantamount to anarchy. (laughs) 
But the agitators responded eloquently in favor of a new concept of political liberty consecrated by the sacrifice of the common soldiery. Mm -hmm. One of the leveler orators, Thomas Rainsborough, had the line that has stayed with us through history, saying, I think that the poorest he that is in England has a life to live, just as the greatest he. And therefore, truly, sir, it's clear that every man that is to live under a government ought first by his own counsel to put himself under that government. Cromwell and the grandees agreed to support the revised version of the demand of these levelers, but without any ability to coordinate and press their demands, the cause fizzled. On November 11th, the king escaped his house arrest at Hampton Court, and while he would be quickly recaptured, the emergency blunted leveler momentum. At Corkbush Field on November 15th, (laughs) a leveler mutiny was personally broken up by the flailing sabers of Fairfax and Cromwell. The common soldiers of the New Model Army were forced to rest their political hopes in the word of their commanders who they still trusted far more than the fat burgers of London or Charles's plumed cavaliers. So we have to go through this background on the new model army since as the parliamentarians start trying to set up some kind of functional government, uh, power is slowly going to drift towards them. And on the day of Charles's execution, the rump parliament holds an emergency session to jam through a bill, basically justifying their own existence. Uh, declaring themselves the supreme representatives of the people and giving themselves the sole authority to run the country. Really uncharted water here. Whose authority are they doing this on? Uh, Not clear, but who's going to stop them? They are the only political force left in the country. Shortly thereafter, in February, the rump creates a council of state to serve as an executive body, and that group is dominated by the army, including, of course, Cromwell and Fairfax, as well as a number of other leading officers. With that body in place, the rump officially declares England a commonwealth on May 19th, 1649. A month earlier, a a group of 19 people had gathered together on a vacant lot on St. George's Hill, southeast of London, with the intention of living in common. They were led by a former tailor named Gerard Winstanley. Winstanley had been financially ruined by the Civil War and became first a leveler, then, after the suppression of the levelers, a true leveler. (laughs) Now, while the levelers sought to equalize the power, the more radical true levelers sought to equalize that which the law is only an ornament of, property. Right. To that end, Winstanley published a pamphlet called The New Law of Righteousness, which argued that the original sin of mankind, which Puritans sought to root out with their godly instruments of government, was the very concept of ownership. Property ownership divided mankind against itself, created war as the permanent condition of life, and turned all cultural and religious institutions into manufacturers of fraud and misery. Cromwell and Parliament could make any government they wanted, but Winstanley wrote, So long as such rulers as called the land theirs, upholding their particular property as mine and thine, the common people shall never have their liberty, nor the law ever freed from troubles, oppressions, and complainings. Shot out of government by the landowners and merchants who had bankrolled Parliament and sought a return on their investment, (laughs) Winstanley led his followers to St. George's Hill in the hopes of demonstrating, by their example, Christ's true hopes for mankind. These diggers, as they were derisively called, were eventually harassed off of the land by armed gangs in the employ (laughs) of local landowners. You've proved my point, sir. (laughs) The Civil War spawned a number of radical religious and political movements and leaders, but the few saw into the fissures created by the conflict as far as Winstanley, whose critique of class society anticipated Marx by 200 years. Pretty impressive. The social base that could make anything of such precocious concepts had yet to be built, however. So when the diggers were repressed, 
when Stanley drifted towards another movement that had its origins in the dislocations of the Civil War, the Society of Friends, mm-hmm. also derisively referred to as the Quakers. All the names that come down to us of any of these groups are people making fun of them. Yes. <laughs> if godly governance was not possible, the Quakers sought to use the new leeway of religious nonconformity to live as godly individuals in a fallen world. Meanwhile, the faction of land and capital owners who had emerged victorious from the war and in command of England's governing institutions set about the impossible task of proving Winstanley wrong by building a godly class society. (laughs) Many people hoped that the victims of the war, over 250,000 men and women in Scotland, England, and Wales, or 7% of the (laughs) island's population, had died to secure a new enduring peace. They would be sorely disappointed on that score. So we might get a little more into this in a bonus episode, but you really do see the click of parliamentarians who emerge here really setting the mold for future uh, bourgeois revolutions by overthrowing the previous regime uh, and then immediately turning back to shave off their radical edges on both sides and setting up this moderate revolutionary center that has no social base to continue forward, right? Yeah, and they're going to struggle mightily trying to build one. Meanwhile, there is this other possible social base being articulated by people like Winstanley, but it's too it's too soon. It, there, there, there is it no, can't be comprehended. There are no structures that can channel the, those feelings right. that Winstanley and others into it about what this new freedom is going to lead to. So then, with power reasonably consolidated, the rump turned to its most pressing issue, the continued rebellion in Ireland. Over almost a decade of rebellion, the Irish Catholics had secured almost the entirety of Ireland, with only Dublin holding out as an English stronghold. Additionally, the Irish Catholics allied with the remaining royalists and declared Charles II as King of Ireland in early 1649, and the threat of an Irish royalist invasion was now real. Plus, the financial motivation for reclaiming all of those plantations and the possibility of raising revenues from the sale of confiscated Catholic lands was tantalizing to the parliamentarians it's always there's always uh you know you you can have ideological things but in the end of the day there's there's some land over there we can get and also you have these pissed off troops who are Mm -hmm. demanding their back pay which you cannot give them which can be extorted from the periphery so as cromwell prepared an invasion the irish attempted to take dublin and deny the english a landing port but on august 2nd the english garrison at dublin launched a surprise counterattack and dispersed the irish and two weeks later, Cromwell lands in Dublin with his 35 ships, with his son-in-law Henry Ireton following shortly after with almost 80 ships. The conquest of Ireland was an absolutely brutal affair. Marked by a series of sieges of Irish strongholds and fortified towns, Cromwell would often offer no quarter to any force that put up a fight. After the siege of Drogheda, the Irish commander Arthur Aston was beaten to death with his own wooden leg. The slaughter of armed forces, clergy, and civilians was widespread and fueled as well by years of reports, rumors, and fantasies drifting back to England of the savageries committed by the Irish on the English and Scottish population there. Uh, the siege of Drogheda really does end up being the Protestant response to the sack of Magdeburg. Yeah. It is the final uh, atrocity to uh, meet the original atrocity. After this generation of warfare, Protestants feeling almost that they had they had cause to to finally be the ones doing the atrocities rather than having the atrocities done on them indeed it's difficult to overstate the fear and loathing that the irish rebels provoked in the calvinists of england fear of being slaughtered by irish catholics in the service of the king did much to convert abstract outrage at charles's administrative overreach into something worth taking up arms over 
Revelation of Charles's negotiations with the Irish rebels destroyed the king's credibility and hastened his path to the executioner's block. When Cromwell landed in Ireland, his troops unleashing a decade of God's stymied wrath upon the papists. At least 200,000 people were killed by the cleansing fire of the Lord's chosen. The country that emerged from the fire was fundamentally changed. The plantation system brought to Ireland by the Tudors was spread across the entire island as Catholics were systematically dispossessed. Thousands were forced onto the bare limestone of the far west province of Connacht. To hell or to Connacht was the choice Cromwell was said to have offered. Thousands more were shipped to the West Indies as indentured servants. This is where you get the, the Irish, Irish were, were slaves, slaves too. too. And it's like, yes, for a little while in certain places, it's true. They were the people shipped to the West Indies by Cromwell. The practice of Catholicism was banned and Catholics were banned from living in Ireland cities. Religious and social life merged as Catholics became a subject population of tenant farmers and laborers working on the lands of absentee Protestant English barons. Meanwhile, veterans of the New Model Army, who were owed years of back wages, were instead paid in confiscated lands, achieving in the colony of Ireland the yeoman dream of self-sufficiency that was rapidly disappearing in England itself. Many more sold their land grants to owners of existing plantations rather than attempt to set up homesteads in ravaged, hostile terrain. The work of settler colonialism isn't for everyone. Though fighting, resistance, and suffering would continue in Ireland for years, and really to this day, mm. in May of 1650, Charles II abandons the Irish Royalist Alliance in favor of an alliance with Scottish Coventers again, 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 who start raising an army to stage a royalist invasion of England. So Cromwell departs Ireland to deal with that. Parliament's plan to stage a preemptive invasion of Scotland was the breaking point for Thomas Fairfax, the longtime commander-in-chief of the New Model Army, who resigned his post rather than take up arms against his former allies. Cromwell was also much more reluctant to turn arms against the Presbyterian Scots than the Irish Catholics, famously pleading with them, I beseech you, in the bowels of Christ, think it is possible you may be mistaken. But the Scots' bowels were indeed mistaken enough to ally with Charles II. So Cromwell now becomes the commander-in-chief of the New Model Army and in the summer of 1650 invades Scotland. Cromwell soundly defeats the Scots at the Battle of Dunbar on September the 3rd. Charles II convinces the Scots that their only choice is to take the fight back to England and in 1651 the Scottish armies invade. Exactly one year after the Battle of Dunbar, Cromwell rinses the Scots again at the Battle of Worcester destroying the Scottish fighting capacity and essentially conquering Scotland itself, which soon officially became part of the Commonwealth rather than a separate kingdom. This is finally the last pitch battle in the series of conflicts going all the way back to the Bishop's War in 1639. Chalk this up to the Scots not taking yes for an answer. Yes. You can keep your Kirk. No, we want to extend it to England. We want to impose our Kirk on you. We have to impose you. our Kirk on you because it's the good one. Yes. We figured this shit out and you need to get a fucking line. Well, guess what? Now nobody gets Now Kirk. nobody gets a Kirk. Congratulations. <laughs> Worcester was another stunning Cromwellian victory, which saw Charles II forced to spend a night hiding in the hollow of an oak tree after ba- fleeing the battlefield. The Royal Oak. You're in the Royal Oak. Which was like a to- became a tourist destination for generations. Yeah, in look at this dipshit head. Look at this loser. <laughs> it also ended the Scottish dream of universal Presbyterianism. Oops, sorry. In the God-fired world of the 17th century, there is no room for religious toleration. 
Ungodliness could infect a religious righteous community by proximity and eat it to the bone. But many in England perceived the Scottish insistence on imposing Presbyterianism on them, much as the Scots had viewed the Book of Common Prayer, the imposition of a foreign power. The two countries had warred with each other on and off for centuries, with England constantly attempting to overpower their smaller neighbor and Scotland seeking overseas allies, usually France, to keep them at bay. Neither could muster sufficient power to dominate the other, the border region being a zone of constant feuding and bloodletting that gave the world a warrior culture that would be exported, first to Ireland and then to the Appalachians of North America. James VI's ascension to the English crown created an uneasy dual monarchy, but it was the fighting of the war that finally created a force capable of imposing a single political power on the island both countries shared. Cromwell harnessed England's superior manpower and resources to thump the independence right out of the Scots. Mm. The Scots dealt with the death of their national and religious project by initiating the most violent spasm <laughs> of witch trials and burnings in the country's history. It's like coming home from getting yelled at by your boss and kicking your dog. And it's the exact same thing as we saw in Germany two or three decades earlier. Who, there's nobody else to get mad at. So, so you got to gotta gotta find some witches. So now Cromwell, commander-in-chief of the New Model Army, conqueror of Ireland and Scotland, is essentially the most powerful man in the Commonwealth. We covered his early biography last episode, but I think it's time to take stock of Cromwell, the man in power, the obscure country gentleman who's about to be the ruler of England, Scotland, and Ireland for half a decade. So what do you what do you make of Cromwell the guy? Because he's a very contentious figure. There are two types of guys we've spotlighted over the course of these series. You've got your dynastic rulers who are forced to adjust to a rapidly changing world. And then you got the upstarts who rise to positions of influence by embodying those changes. Oliver Cromwell, coming as he does near the end of this century and a half of political and religious tumult in a country with the most dynamic political system in Europe, is the upstart's upstart. Mm -hmm. Fired with the singular religious vision of a Luther or a Calvin, able to harness the unleashed forces of the military and financial revolution like a Wallenstein or a Gustavus, mm -hmm. Cromwell rose to the commanding position of a powerful new state apparatus. But people like Cromwell can only rise as far as the currents of history will take them. No act of will could fill the vacuum of authority left by the execution of the king. Cromwell and the other parliamentary leaders had tried their best to avoid having to kill Charles, but once they decided it was necessary to secure their rule, they convinced themselves of the ultimate righteousness of replacing the tyranny of monarchy with the godly rule of the elected mm -hmm. representatives of parliament. Yes. Those representatives, though, all had their own ideas of what comprised godly rule. And without a Hobbesian embodiment of state authority, like, say, a king, they failed to deliver Cromwell's vision and forced him to continually reassert, insert himself into the workings of government. Yes, yes, rule by the elect, democracy, but they just weren't doing it right. Yes. I am convinced that Cromwell was not manipulating events to keep being put in charge. He had every opportunity to be a king of England if yes. he wanted it. His rule was ratified by his embodiment of this entire vision, mm -hmm. this social vision. His only problem was his social vision was incompatible with reality because he, unlike the tardy Charles, had overshot the runway on where society was. <laughs> yes. And he had was as powerless to change that as Charles had been. That's my read on him, too, is, um, you know, he's, we'll get him more into his legacy, but he he's, it seems like he's just always backed into a corner by his own 
vision of the future, you know? He's, he's constantly pushed into a, a, a ever smaller circle of power. The only thing that his side, the, the people he wanted to govern for him, mm-hmm. uh, the only thing that they could agree on was waging a social war mm-hmm. with a population that was not was only marginally invested in. Yes. And that's where we say, like, there's no social basis for this governance, and it, they fail to cohere over and over again. Well, let's get into how that happens. Yes. Speaking of failing to cohere, let's get back to parliamentary politics. By 1653, the rump parliament itself had devolved into stalled and intractable debates with very few results. Though they had managed to pass uh, a navigation act to shore up English commerce and piss off the Dutch in the process, and more on that in a minute. Weird how what they could agree to yes. were the things that were the expeditious interests of the merchant class. Yes, exactly. The attempts to create a legitimate structure for perpetual government or produce a settlement for all the still achingly fractured religious divides in these former three kingdoms had all gone nowhere. Cromwell hoped his stunning military victories would have given the rump both the breathing room and godly inspiration to start making some real movement. But by April 1653, as the rump's main move seemed to be setting up individual recruiter elections to simply perpetuate itself, Cromwell reached a breaking point. Faced with a parliament that defied the will of the sovereign, Cromwell did what Charles had done, lead an armed band into the assembly with the intention of breaking it up. Mm-hmm. But where Charles spoke for himself and his threadbare medieval institutions of power into a hostile, organized power faction with the London crowds at their back, Cromwell spoke, for a modern military fiscal state to a divided and unpopular collection of religious wackos. <laughs> so when he said, quote, you have sat here too long for any good you have been doing. Depart, I say, and let us have done with you. In the name of God, go. They, they fucking, fucking went. went. And now the slow creep of military rule was complete. After the rump's dismissal, Cromwell and the army were the only remaining body of any authority left to govern the Commonwealth. And yet, they still grope for something approaching institutional legitimacy. So a small group of top army officers get together and come up with a new form of parliament and ended up personally selecting 140 men, mostly based on who they thought were the most godly, because what other qualifications can you possibly have here? This assembly comes to be known as Bare Bones Parliament. After one member of it with maybe the most Puritan-ass name of all times, Praise God, Barebones. Praise God, Barebones. Ah, oh, Puritan names, man. And guess what? This parliament collapses in December 1653 after six months of infighting over mostly religious issues. What? Yes. Could you believe it? At least Barebones Parliament has the courtesy to vote to dissolve itself and not make Cromwell haul the army back in there to, to, to send them home. Very polite of them. So the ball's back in the army's court, and now the council of officers take it upon themselves to finally build a new full government. What they come up with is called the Instrument of Government, a document devised by Major General John Lambert and a drawing from many of the proposals that came out of the Putney debates. The instrument creates a tripartite government featuring a checks and balances system between a parliament, a council of state, and a single executive, the Lord Protector, which is, I think, the best name for an executive that we've already come up with, the Lord Protector. I would love to be a Lord Protector. Yes. So in this system... Parliament voted on legislation and then also voted members of the Council of State in. The Lord Protector had military authority and the ability to veto acts coming up from Parliament. And the Council of State uh, voted in the Protectors, chose who the Lord Protector would be, and future replacements for the Lord Protector. And also the Council had um, 
many actions of the protector required the majority vote of council for assent. So on paper, at least a reasonable, rational system that purposely seeks to avoid, say, a military dictatorship. And you see the protean form that political structures under capitalism, ascendant capitalism will mm-hmm. create a, yes. this divided government that mm-hmm. allows for uh, public uh, debate mm-hmm. to replace the will of an individual sovereign but ends up being directed by yes. instead of the landowning class that backed up the king the property owning classes of the cities exactly the capital owning classes of the cities so the council of officers vote the instrument in on december 15th 1653 and elects who else but oliver cromwell what? the lord protector the know. next day a new parliament complete with reformed districts and elections assembles in september 1654 and will it surprise you to hear that this parliament collapsed into infighting what? and didn't make any motion on the dozens of reform bills presented to it. Cromwell dissolves it as soon as he's allowed to by the instrument of government in January of 1655. Okay. So that is the extreme thumbnail of how we get from the last vestiges of traditional English government with the rump parliament of 1649 to Lord Protector Cromwell in 1655. The further details of all of this are, of course, very interesting and important, but it's the broader strokes that we are actually getting at. A seemingly unresolvable cycle of straining for political legitimacy, functional government, some form of democratic rule that collapsed back onto military rule by those few Puritan officers and, of course, Oliver Cromwell. The social base had not yet developed to the point that it could imbue authority in any meaningful sense to institutions that did not have some sort of hierarchical connection mm-hmm. to a, a greater polity. Right. No matter what their religious belief was, that was the only thing that could deny, unite them. Uh, and parliament itself is dominated by people who thought that they could fix all this by applying their specific millenniary understanding of Christianity to the, the question of government and thereby resolving all the contradictions through the, real, uh, the uh, second coming of Christ. <laughs> Which that, is, that is their answer to the question of what about these mounting contradictions caused, as Winstanley would point out, by property relations. Yes. Their answer is we will make these questions meaningless by bringing about Christ's return. Right. So we don't have to give up any of our stuff before that. <laughs> yes, the second coming of Christ really would fix the, uh, the dialectical uh, machine that drives history. Yeah. But of course, there's no popular force to... Fill, fill in with mm-hmm. real demands for reform because they didn't get the, the levelers didn't get their increased democracy. Right. So they were shut out of the process. Right. And there was no way to ground this authority, this new system in a popular impute it with popular legitimacy. So it just totters around. And the only person who can stand in for that pediment is the guy who is the closest thing to a conquering sovereign who's around Oliver Cromwell. Mm-hmm. His claim to the throne is the same as Henry Tudor's had been. I, I've got the guys. I've yes. got the army. And he who's, had the ability, who's gonna stop me? But his literal his ideological commitment to the project was such that he could not refound it. And the worry being that if you do that, then you undermine everyone's belief in it. Right. And the whole thing cla- collapses. So part of the so the bourgeois now, especially the parliamentarians, are going through uh they're all they're going crazy. Yes. They're they're driving themselves insane because the wheel of history will not turn the way they want it to. So the bourgeois of England had been able to seize power, but holding it would require a cohesion of interests popular social legitimacy and religious consensus that their representatives in parliament were incapable of generating Mm -hmm. in the absence of this unifying sovereign. The fight against the king had provided them with a unifying task and purpose. Victory left them fractured and being fired by godly righteousness, unwilling to compromise, 
Unable to govern, many of them retreated to religious fantasy. You just got to imagine Charles looking down and saying, see, it's not that easy. It's not that easy, is it? So unable to govern, many of them retreated, as would-be and active sovereigns of past generations had, to religious fantasy. Among the various sects and manias of the time, one of the most politically influential were the fifth monarchy men, one of Mm -hmm. whom was at least a woman. The group included a number of prominent new model army commanders, parliamentarians, Mm -hmm. and London artisans who were disillusioned by the failure of parliament to embody godly governance and get fucking Jesus to show up. To find the solution they looked, where else? To the Bible. Yes. Specifically to the apocalyptic books of Daniel and Revelation. What a shock. Mm -hmm. Daniel describes four monarchies that must rise and fall before Armageddon, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman. Fifth monarchists believed that Charles's execution marked the end of the fourth or Roman monarchy, which meant that they were tasked with building the fifth and final monarchy that would herald Christ's return. From Revelation, they found the number 666, the mark of the beast, indicating that the final battle between Christ and Antichrist would occur in 1666, which is coming up fast. Only a decade or so away. Better get fucking ready. (laughs) So Cromwell was initially sympathetic to the fifth monarchists, and many hailed him as the new Moses when he dismissed the rump. Mm -hmm. Old praise bones, bare bones of the bare bones parliament was a prominent fifth monarchist. While a few fifth monarchists evinced sympathy for the level or social vision, most were happy to maintain the social order if they could just impose religious uniformity on Britain. The actual substance of these arguments is incredibly tedious <laughs> and about questions of tithes, how much tithes you got to give, yes. to who do you give the tithes to. They were building a Swiss watch by committee on a ship in an ocean storm. <laughs> so all of them became disillusioned with Cromwell when he kicked Barebones and his boys out of Westminster. Never able to reach a mass constituency, the fifth monarchists failed to assert an independent influence on Cromwell's government. One of the most prominent later fifth monarchists, a cooper named Thomas Venner, led an abortive uprising against Cromwell in 1657. Turns out, not Moses after all. Domestically, Cromwell spends most of his time in power trying to get this damn system of government working in some functional way. This includes this whole business of dividing the Commonwealth into military districts under the direct control of some major generals of the new model army, which then impose a harsh system of taxation to support the army itself. As well, Cromwell's administration worked to impose state religious institutions and morality conforming to his cadre's very specific brand of puritanical beliefs. This is the aforementioned Swiss watch on the boat. This is when they really get around trying to take out Christmas as well. What do they have left? Culture war. Yes, literal culture war. War on culture to replace the political power that can't be asserted. And remember, it wouldn't be hell on earth if it didn't involve a bunch of people becoming obsessed with creating a heaven on earth. By nobody getting any figgy pudding at all. <laughs> There's some other funny stuff in here. They, they, they have these committees called triers and ejectors for policing clergy staff. Like, this is more of the tedious stuff. Like, yeah, like they're trying to create like, commi- political commissars for the church. Yes. So, like, come in with the hook and pull you off uh, the pulpit if you say the wrong thing. But then there's, all, there's also this other element of Cromwell's regime that even as they're trying to get this state church perfect, that there is a notable amount of religious toleration well they're breaking they're breaching this church they're creating a church state divide for the first time and in that space yes religious non-observance and non-conformity can thrive they even and i found this very funny cromwell made a concerted effort to bring the jews back he to brought England. the jews back 
Uh, Edward the first had kicked them out yes. back in the 13th century. Yes. But his motivation for this was mostly along the lines of Jews. They're good for business and they're good for bringing Christ back to, to this day. That is why conservatives like Jews. Yes, exactly. He's really setting this, the, uh, the, the Philo Semitic Western standard. Yes, exactly. Of the, the evangelical, uh, Jewish alliance yes. that, that we see, see to this day. Puritan theology also, uh, ends up being sympathetic to Jews because, they see the Jews like them as chosen people, mm-hmm. people of the book, mm-hmm. which could not be said of Catholics. They literally told you to not read the book. <laughs> so the business with the major generals running basically a, a military dictatorship of England really only lasts about 18 months. Uh, it's wildly unpopular and is rescinded with the calling of a second protectorate parliament in January 1657. But let's... Put a pin in that and take a look at what's going on abroad under the Lord Protector. Because even while Cromwell and his military junto struggle fruitlessly to secure some kind of workable government at home, the sinews and muscle of what would become the economic engine of British Empire are forming and strengthening all around the world. While Parliament might have been unable to agree on the status of religion in the new Commonwealth, how much tithing there should be and whatnot, the merchants who supported them were united around one goal, advancing their colonial interests and getting return on their colonial investment. The highest ranks of the landowners and merchant class in England during the war had supported Charles. Right. Because for all his faults, he stood for an established order that treated them well. Mm-hmm. At the very level, the very top of all of these places, including among the merchants, mm-hmm. you're going to see politically conservative sentiment reign because things are going well yes so they support the king during the war they also avoid investing in these highly risky american colonial projects they have money flows they don't need to risk like that the middling rank though Mm -hmm. of striving merchants who were religiously fervent and precariously stretched between economic advancement and failure though they had provided the bulk of funds to support the creation of new england as well as loans to parliament during the war on multiple Mm -hmm. occasions now after the war, this colonial merchant class pressed their interests on the new government. That meant they demanded a policy of promoting colonial trade, mm-hmm. shipbuilding, and the Navigation Act, which banned unlicensed foreign merchants from trading with Britain's American colonies, driving business to the English traders. Yes. Cromwell wrapped this mercantile project in a cloak of righteousness, telling Parliament, you shall shine forth to other nations who shall emulate the glory of such a pattern and through the power of God turn into the like so we are immediately creating Mm -hmm. a political religious ideology to wrap this colonial investment venture in or up in right as wallenstein had attempted a northern design to secure the baltic for the holy roman empire Mm -hmm. cromwell in turn conceived a western design to secure the caribbean for the british parliament this meant sending an armada to seize spain's colonies and enforce the navigation act against dutch shipping the design largely failed netting only the island of Jamaica, but the Dutch were soundly defeated, creating a durable English trade network between the British Isles and her American colonial holdings that would fuel the British economy for the next century. England's American colonies varied dramatically in their viability during this period. 7,000 Englishmen went to Jamaica as part of the Western design, and 5,000 were dead within the first 10 months. <laughs> you, they keep, you just keep sending, keep spe- just sending, sending guys, guys to the Caribbean until some of them develop some sheer brute force, yeah. some sort of resistance to yellow fever. I mean, it is kind of the, um, 
the small comeuppance for the yes. eternal comeuppance for the the decimation of indigenous populations it's true. without the real intent through the spreading of western diseases is that the they got Caribbean, bad for a while central america <laughs> just be, ends up being this black hole of yeah. disease for generations yeah. of, of striving but of course uh, it's like European that is colonists. nature telling you don't come here yes. asshole like this is you are not taking god's hint for you to get the fuck out of here yes now the colony in virginia a project of the Virginia Company, chartered by James the First in 1606 as a commercial venture mm-hmm. in co- copying the Dutch model, uh, also struggled mightily. From 1607 to 1624, over 6,000 English subjects had traveled to Virginia, but by the end of that period, the colony's population was only 1,200. A Virginia Company official complained that back home, people were happy to label the entire project a most regulated kind of killing of men. <laughs> Put that in the brochure. Yes. The colony was perpetually short of supplies and beset by attacks from the indigenous population. Mm -hmm. New England was a different story where the religious project of the Puritan settlers fostered a social solidarity that saw the population explode over the course of the 17th century. In fact, New England was likely the only place on earth where Europeans saw their caloric intake increase during the mid-century crisis. They're they're having all those Thanksgivings. They're they're fattening up. Yeah. The social contradictions that tore Europe apart were resolved in the New World through the secret recipe of religious uniformity, war with, and dispossession of Native American tribes, and the importation of enslaved Africans, who were crucial in turning the labor-intensive soils of the South into the cash crops that sustained the colonial enterprise and filled England's coffers. The split in the Calvinist psyche that had originated in the armenian Gamarist conflict in the Netherlands, remember Mm -hmm. that? Well, it was resolved in British North America through a spatial fix. New England, with its rocky soil, became a hub of trade and manufacturing where the most successful capitalists were able to profit from the settlement of the continent by sitting in drawing rooms, trading bills of exchange Mm -hmm. without dirtying their hands. The religion followed from that. Fiery Puritanism gave way to liberal congregationalism and as the scientific advancements of the Industrial Revolution undermined faith in revealed religion, secular liberalism. In the southern colonies, however, where profit depended on slave labor, And in the Appalachians separating European and native populations, the bloody work of building America was consecrated by an evangelical Calvinism that turned the sins of empire into evidence of eternal virtue. And if you want to hear how that project goes, there's a uh, little podcast called Hell of Presidents that kind of picks up where that thread leads off. Yes. Um, so, and also just one off thing about um, the Dutch, who are the English are going to be in often on conflict with for the next 20 or so years um there is also a brief interesting moment in 1651 where the dutch and english are feeling out the possibility of a political union against the spanish like hey maybe we're the uh same guys and uh but it gets kibosh because you know they, the dutch were kind of sending feelers over about it to just kind of see oh maybe Cromwell we was a little going. too excited about yeah the but then Cromwell, yeah Cromwell wrote back like really you, are you sure because we could do this. Let, let me start drawing up some plans for this. And then they all got cold feet. But um, the Dutch hmm. thought they had the horses. Yes, exactly. Turns out they didn't have the horses, but they but, had every reason to think so at the time. But uh, more to come from that. I perhaps. guess I should say the boats. <laughs> yes. And here we're back then to the old problem that even the execution of the king and the establishment of a commonwealth couldn't do away with. All this adventure in the perpetuation of a standing army needed money. So a second protectorate parliament was called, which met starting in September of 1656. This parliament rejected a militia bill for continuing the taxes for the rule of the major generals, bringing that whole experiment to an end. 
They then submitted a reformed constitution called the Humble Petition and Advice. Please, please, sir. This please, sir, con- we may have some <laughs> This constitution brought more authority, especially around taxation, directly under parliamentary control. Still struggling to wrangle this government into something the English could comprehend as stability, it also, well, humbly petitioned Oliver Cromwell to take the crown and officially become King Oliver I. Could have done it. And Cromwell considered this offer for several weeks. They all understood the concept of a king was interwoven with the fundamental laws of the nation. He deeply desired a settlement to the years and years of instability. He wanted to make the whole thing fucking work. But in the end, his final reasons being eternally his own and left to the speculation of future dorks like us, Cromwell refuses the crown. The rest of the humble petition is taken up, including reestablishing the House of Lords, though they couldn't figure out what to call it, so they just called it the other house. (laughs) But maybe, just maybe, we're finally getting somewhere with this whole project. And then, on September 3rd, 1658, the dual anniversary of his smashing victories at Worcester and Dunbar, Oliver Cromwell died at the age of 59. Cromwell leaves one of the most difficult and fascinating legacies of any of the guys we've covered here. He's really setting a mold for the next 300 years. He is a singular leader to emerge from a revolutionary moment that comes off as a genocidal dictator to some and a noble champion of liberty to others. Though he installed a military dictatorship over the Commonwealth, at every point he tried to find some other way to manage the country, and ultimately he did refuse to become the king. He slaughtered the Irish, but worked for broad religious toleration at home. For every parliament he dismissed by force or procedure, he tried to call at least one more. To me, like most of the guys from our history podcast that I end up feeling some sympathy for, he comes across as an extremely capable and focused guy. Thrust into his position by a wild combination of skill and circumstance, who is desperate against completely unmanageable forces to get everyone to stop fighting about bullshit and just get shit done. Unless you're Irish Catholic, then it is, of course, to hell or Connacht. Oliver Cromwell was the prototype of a visionary disruptor, blowing open the stultifying consensus of English politics and innovating at a radical scale. And like many visionary disruptors who would follow him, he ended up accidentally recreating the very thing (laughs) he disrupted. As Netflix ended up inventing cable television, Cromwell ended up inventing hereditary monarchy. The failure of Parliament to cohere into a viable instrument of government left Cromwell to embody the state's legitimacy in his person, just as the Stuarts, Tudors, and Plantagenets had done before him. But instead of centuries of history, ritual, and symbolism, his authority was upheld by nothing more than his personal resume of battles and wars won, which was enough to hold together a fractious polity in his lifetime, but not enough to transfer to his chosen successor, his son, Richard Cromwell, who had won precisely Dick. And I want to say, paradoxically, his refusal to take the the crown, which gets him labeled as this humble servant of, of of burgeoning democracy, however they conceived of it. I honest, I would argue, is actually evidence of his pride. Mm. At that point, he should have known that the, that the vestments of monarchy were necessary to cohere the elements of English society. Right. And recognized his own essential role in that process mm. and tried to build a state on that basis. 
Instead, he's like, no, my dipshit son will get it for me on this fucking rickety structure that had done nothing in its short existence to create real tendrils of authority that go downward into any levels of American of uh, English society. Casual history observer tip. If you find yourself at the head of something in a revolutionary moment, start planning your successor immediately, immediately. Yeah, that is like he should have had a successor in pocket in 1649. Yeah. And he should have made it a hereditary. He should have reestablished the goddamn monarchy. Yes. But then they would have been wrong about something. And, and that once you start pulling those Jenga tiles out, the entire edifice collapses. The short, sad protectorate of Richard Cromwell is a pathetic footnote to the stunning rise of his father. Richard secedes upon his father's death in September and is immediately faced with the same issues, authority and money. The role of protector only functioned in as much as it commanded the power of the new model army, which had no personal loyalty to Richard and required massive state financial support, which required parliamentary consent from an increasingly conservative parliament wary of military power and very jealous of their acute accrued political and economic power. So Richard calls a parliament that meets in January of 1659. The army's petitions of their concerns to parliament are ignored and parliament increasingly dominated by the other house of lords goes about drawing up charges on an army officer accused of mishandling a royalist way back in 1655 petty stuff but they're trying to assert their authority sufficiently pissed off the army leans on richard to dismiss the third protector at parliament which he does in april a month later facing rejection from both army and parliamentary class richard submits a letter of resignation and slinks off into obscurity after just nine months on the job allowing the protectorate itself to be seen as a mere aberration by the power-mad Cromwells. And that's how we get one of the more unfortunate historical epithets for Richard, tumble-down dick. Tumble-down dick. Oh, God, that's so brutal. Yes. Got to be one of the top fail sons mm-hmm. in history. And it should have been and could have been Cromwell's brother, uh, son-in-law, Henry Ireton, but Who'd he died with him at he, all. Yes. He died in 1651. Yeah. So once again, the, you had someone who is a theoretical successor, uh, and then the winds of fate come along and you're left with somebody who had had no acculturation or seasoning to the role and could not hack that pressure. Dick game, tumble down status. <laughs> it's a tumble down dick. The army reassembles the rump parliament. Hey, come on here, guys. No hard feelings. Uh, Going back to pre-protectorate electoral configuration, which this newly reinstated rump parliament dicks around until October when it is again dissolved by the army. What? This time under reinstated John Lambert, who then organizes a committee of safety of military men to run the state. This is where the possibility of of the army staging an essential military coup is real. Yes. And this is when you see the uh, other forces in English society start moving towards the uh, poll that they recognize. Yes. So all of this is too much for uh, one George Monk, who is a slightly enigmatic figure in this whole process. It's never really clear what his specific motivations are or what he fully intended to do when he um, when he set out on this, but he becomes the man of history of this moment. He is uh, cl- he's a classic one of these sneaky sneaks yes. who get in there and uh, grease the wheels, and you're never sure why. Yes. But they have some, it seems like they have some intuitive understanding of where the main chance is and how to get about pursuing it, basically. So Monk was the current military governor of Scotland, and he leads an army to London to restore order now that the wheels have just fallen off of everything. Lambert takes an army to fight Monk, but Lambert's army just 
kind of dissolves and Monk takes London and then they just restore the king. Like, that's it. After 20 years of fighting over this, the restoration of Charles II Stuart is remarkable for how it kind of just happens with ease. They just invite him back in. Yes. They're literally out of ideas. Monk reorganizes the rump parliament back into the long parliament by readmitting everybody who is purged by pride in pride's purge. The long parliament finally votes to dissolve itself in March 1660, 20 years after it was first officially called and after all those de-evolutions and reinstatements. That is a long-ass parliament. It is a long-ass parliament. And they replace themselves with a convention parliament oriented towards restoration. Charles II, to his credit, was fairly crafty in issuing a series of declarations from his base of Breda in the Netherlands, advertising to an increasingly game parliament that he would be willing to play ball with them on all of the issues the civil wars were fought over, and especially crafty in leaving all the really thorny issues that could get a king in trouble to parliament, like issues of religious settlement. Uh, Those are your things. You figure that stuff out. It's all wrapped up in the language of humble deference to the parliamentarians. So on May 25th, 1660, Charles's boat lands at Dover, delivering the prodigal king back onto the shores of England. Charles II arrives in London on his 30th birthday, May 29th, 1660, and soon after, the body of Oliver Cromwell was dug up and posthumously hung. Uh, it's very funny that all of that, this process leads to the overthrow of Cromwell, who had been forged by the war into this, like, you know, diamond of history, and then replaced by Charles II, who spent all that time just basically uh, hat in hand at the various courts of Europe, yes. being passed around like a poor relation, mm-hmm. just being generally a drunk, uh, very horny oaf. Yes. Flamboyant party boy. Yes. Just uh, wearing on the patience of everyone who had to put up yes, with him. Yes. Who, going from France to Spain to the Netherlands, just saying, oh, if you give me, just give me a thousand pounds. Yeah. I'll, I'll put I, an just, army. Uh, just let me hold some shillings. Yes. Yeah, so I'll get an army together yeah. and we'll, we'll take over England. And then after all that, they're just like, hey, you want it? This throne's open. Come because back. Because we we, the work we have done, it has not built anything stable, but it is capable of operating under a sovereign. Mm-hmm. And getting to political outcomes, as long as they are ratified by that sovereign. Yes. But they need a fucking sovereign. And we got a guy now here who you don't have to worry about. He's learned a lesson. Yes. <laughs> I'm Sawwee. Please yeah. help me home. One of the key compromises that allowed for the return of the Stuarts was the Indemnity and Oblivion Act, which offered a mass amnesty to those who had fought for and governed under the parliamentary side and later Commonwealth. This accepted the 59 men who had signed the king's death warrant and those who had participated in the, de- the deliberations. That's honestly fair. If yes. you, that's one of the things when you sign a death warrant of a king. That's you're the thing. opening like, the possibility that a king might come back and uh, you know, you're doing some regicide. That's the, the, this sacrifice of the regicides is really the consecration of the deal. Yeah. Like we are reinscribing the mm-hmm. sacredness of the king's office through the ritual decimation of those who rose against him. Yes. Even though most of the people who were on their side, ended up still in government yes. and in control of vast uh, wheels of power. Also, most of these guys had already died. And stuff. A yeah. lot of them had, including yeah. Cromwell. Yes. The, the most powerful had. Yeah. Everyone else was sacrificed, basically, yes. to, the, to this, uh, this ritual. Uh, Cromwell and his son-in-law, Henry Ireton, and John Bradshaw had their corpses disinterred and hanged. 
Some of the people who were still alive fled the country to avoid execution. Uh, others had their sentences commuted to life in prison, and a few were pardoned. All told, 12 surviving English regicides were hanged, drawn, and quartered. Four more were hanged or beheaded in Scotland. The mass of parliamentary supporters were thus allowed to carry on business under the new old regime. <laughs> but the longed-for stability that the Restoration promised was thwarted by this new Charles. The events of his life had given Charles a strong sympathy for Catholicism, which was still anathema to the most powerful landowners and merchants of the kingdom. He also couldn't seem to sire a legitimate heir, even though he produced bastards by the bushel low. <laughs> In fact, Princess Diana descended from two of Charles's bastards, the Dukes of Grafton and Richmond. So if Prince William ever does become king, England will be ruled by a descendant of the Stuarts and the cadet branch of Beer George's Saxon Wettons. It all comes back, baby. It all comes back together. So yes, they, they had a guy who was willing to say the right words to mm -hmm. get in power, but now... He's still going to be governing uh, in a family legacy that is yes. going to consume his ability to take the hint. So Charles's reign is both a bit of a vibe shift and as well, more of the same. Uh, an immediate rollback of Puritan social hegemony coupled with uh, Charles's flamboyant court produced a restoration period of generally loosening morals as well as a culture filled with ribald plays and fashionable opulence and a mini renaissance of English literature, scientific and intellectual writing. But we're also back to many of the same problems of his father's reign, religion and money. The next parliament was initially dominated by royalists and thus came to be called the Cavalier Parliament. Uh, and they set about reasserting the dominance of the Anglican church through a series of acts designed to prevent nonconforming Protestants, your more radical Puritans, Calvinists, Quakers, as well as unreformed Catholics from public office and military positions, as well as generally making it difficult to practice any religion outside of the Anglican church. Over the 1660s, parliamentary trust in Charles begins to erode, and suspicions of his Catholic leanings increase to a fever pitch in the 1670s. This transition is reflected by happenings in foreign policy, in which the mercantile policies of parliament were first aligned with the king's prerogatives, and then they began to diverge. Matt? So Charles II took the imperial machine crafted by Cromwell's protectorate and pushed it into overdrive. The Virginia colony in North America, which had struggled so mightily in the first half of the century, established an exploding tobacco economy based on enslaved African labor. The dowry Charles claimed from his Portuguese wife, Catherine of Braganza, was the colony of Bombay in India which was then leased to England's East India Company. That investment would pay off spectacularly in the centuries to follow. The metastasizing Anglo-colonial project put Britain on a collision course with the Dutch. Mm -hmm. In 1565, the Duke of York's fleet showed up at New Amsterdam Harbor, seizing that crucial trade hub for England. The Second Anglo-Dutch War, the first had been fought under Cromwell, ended with the Dutch recognizing English control of New, England, New York, while England made concessions to Dutch traders in the Navigation Act. The relatively poor outcome was blamed on Charles's chancellor, Lord Clarendon, who was dismissed, replaced by a group of advisors who may have been the origin of the term cabal. They were Sir Clifford, Lord Arlington, the Duke of Buckingham, Lord Ashley, and Lord Lauderdale. Cabal. Cabal. A literal acronym. Like fucking chaos or something from <laughs> James Bond movie. The cabal. That's who they are. Until this point, the king and parliament were on the same page on the need to confront and humble the Dutch, who posed the biggest threat to English plans for trade domination of the Atlantic. 
One motivation that aided this was a parliament-led shift in royal finances away from land taxes and towards excise taxes and taxes on trade, unifying royal and parliamentary interests in promoting English merchant prosperity, as well, of course, as bringing the poor and working classes into the financial structure of the kingdom with taxes on consumption. Everyone's paying in. There's skin in the game now. Mm -hmm. To this end, Charles allied with France, signing the secret Treaty of Dover in 1670. That led to the joint Anglo-French invasion of the Dutch uh, horror year, the Rompyar, yes. which led to the DeWitt brothers getting eaten. Remember that? Yes. Uh, but eating the DeWitts apparently was like Popeye eating spinach because the Dutch were able to repel the invasions mm-hmm. and secure favorable peace. Meanwhile, Charles allying with Catholic France against the Protestant Dutch starts reawakening some of that old parliamentary Holy Spirit and Parliament arranges a marriage between Charles's legitimate daughter, Mary, and the Dutch Stadtholder, William of Orange. Yes, remember last episode when we talked about how during this era, the the, politi- the religious alliance of the king's foreign policy was taken as an implication of his support at home. And any time that it was expedient for the, uh, the English and French to work together, you got an uptick in parliamentary resistance to the king because he didn't want, it wasn't, you didn't want to see them working with those perfidious Catholic French. Yes, they had a a economic and political and ideological alliance that they were trying to pursue mm-hmm. and, and they became across purposes with the crown. So things began to really disintegrate in the 1670s as Charles continued to produce no legitimate heirs to the throne. And it became increasingly certain that Charles's actually Catholic brother, James would be next in line for King. No fool in Roman ass Catholic James. An exclusion bill was introduced into parliament to prevent James from ascending. And as kind of an aside, this moment gives us the birth of England's two original political party orientations, the Tories and the Whigs, which through somewhat obscure reasons take their name from the reappropriated terms for Irish Catholic brigands and radical Scottish Presbyterians. The Tories were the royalist-aligned opponents of exclusion, and the Whigs were the parliamentary-aligned proponents of exclusion. And we see here the basis for Partisan politics is a modern concept. And what is it based around? It's not based around people coming together on a common political ideology. Mm-hmm. It's based around response to a specific issue. Yes. That expedience. What are we going to do about the king's Catholic brother creates the conditions that organize people around a political pole, mm-hmm. which then creates a party, which then creates a public face that is uh, and it creates a culture of a culture of competition yes where the class antagonisms are sublimated away from physical confrontation towards legal confrontation through these deliberative bodies and it's also a part of the development of the the social technologies of this time the uh, growth of uh, of printing and, yes, and news culture news cultures the, 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 these parties are creatures of print yes and once after the restoration when parliament could actually continue meeting at regular places you're doing regular elections it's creating a permanent class of people who are institutionalized enough to actually have organs of control and maintenance built around them. You start seeing, uh, you know, commands for, uh, you know, uh, manifestos, political manifestos being generated at the center of these party structures and radiating out back into the constituencies rather than a kind of uh, organic move up from, you know, this, this country, the particular interests of whatever country hamlet you're being sent from back into the city. Yes, precisely. So the rest of his reign is spent with Charles calling, then almost immediately dismissing Parliament as it becomes increasingly combative, both with the king and within itself. To the Whigs, it appears Charles is taking a page from the Louis XIV model. 
embracing increasingly absolutist tendencies, packing the judiciary with loyal judges and sheriffs to make the law a tool of the king, a return to arbitrary imprisonments, excluding and even prosecuting various Whig MPs, things of that nature. Well, then, in February 1685, Charles dies rather suddenly of an apoplectic fit at the age of a 54. His brother James does indeed ascend to the throne, as James II of England in Ireland and James VII of Scotland in April of 1685, the kingdom's first orderly succession in 50 years. Like his brother, James has spent his youth in exile, spending most of the time in France and in the Spanish Netherlands. He had served in various foreign forces, acquitting himself fairly admirably in battle, helping the French monarchy fight the Fronde, and then later the Spanish fight the French after Charles had allied with Spain to try to retake the crown. His time in France imparted him with an infatuation for Catholicism, and he converted in 1668, though under his brother's insistence he continued following Anglican rituals, at least publicly. Throughout the 1670s, as we described, he was the focus of intense anti-Catholic hysteria and the motivation for the Test Act and Exclusion Act to prevent Catholics in general, and him specifically, from holding offices. But this hysteria waned, and by the time of his ascension, there was little opposition in London. However, two small-scale rebellions broke out, one from Lord Monmouth, Charles's illegitimate son, and one from the Scottish Earl of Argyle, both in direct opposition to James's Catholicism. They were both put down with perhaps overzealous ferocity. Uh, in the end, James's justices hanged about 320 men and sentenced an additional 800 to be transported to Barbados. Now, crushing a rebellion with extreme prejudice might seem like an understandable move by James, given what happened to his father. But the man cannot leave well enough alone. The king proceeds to dismiss Parliament and pursue an increasingly pro-Catholic policy. He enlarged the standing army and gave Catholics command of regiments. He promoted Catholics to high offices and removed Anglican officials that displeased him. He issued a declaration of indulgence asserting that he could personally waive laws enforcing Anglican conformity. And finally, he set about a wholesale purge of elected roles to arrange a royalist favoring majority in Parliament. Now, there's been continued historical debate on some of these points. James's declaration of indulgence can be read as a move toward broad religious toleration of both Catholic and Protestant dissenters from state Anglicanism. But it is clear from his actions his main goal was promoting Catholicism in England to the exclusion of others, and in the process, building an authoritarian bureaucratic regime around him that became increasingly intolerable to the old parliamentary forces. And this all came to a head in November 1687, when it was announced the queen was pregnant and the possibility of a Catholic heir to the throne became real. He's trying to sweep back the tide of yes. history. He's trying to, he's going to find out though that he wants it to be one way, but it's the other way. It's the other way. It's it's the it other, already is. It's already the other way. It's too late, sir. Uh, the English merchant class, which had fought so long and hard to wrest political and religious authority from the hands of Catholic and crypto-Catholic monarchs, saw the possibility of all their advances being undone. The return of the Catholic tyranny of Bloody Mary's Day, complete with a new book of martyrs and a new age of papist superstition benighting the land. The end of reformed religion and parliamentary rule. The Stuarts had become simply too enmeshed in the counter-reformed Catholic world to be trusted with the throne. What was needed was a new dynasty, headed by someone who had been born into a vastly different political and religious context. Someone whose dynastic ambitions had already been tempered by the experience of ruling over an autonomous and influential urban bourgeois.
So William III of Orange was born November 14th, 1650, in The Hague, Netherlands. He was the son of William II of Orange and Mary, the daughter of Charles I, though his father died of smallpox eight days before William III was born, and his mother was often absent in his childhood. This led to an education and rearing from multiple sources, including a guardianship under his uncle Frederick William of Brandenburg and a stint in the University of Leiden, and also under the direct supervision of Johann de Witt. Mm-hmm. Though through all this, he was exposed to a mix of the classic dynastic education befitting one expected to be a ruler and the mechanics of public business that was the domain of the Grand Pensionary of Holland. He came up as the power of the burghers of the States General was reaching its zenith, and though William was known to be charming, capable, and generally popular, the States were constantly working to undermine his ability for advancement, including separating the office of Stadtholder and Captain General, and specifically banning a member of the House of Orange from becoming Stadtholder of Holland. Despite all this, his popular support dynastic tradition, and his demonstrable talent compelled the states to appoint William as Captain General in early 1672. For William, the Rompiar of 1672 provided exceptional opportunities. As we covered a few episodes ago, the joint Anglo-French attack and French occupation of Utrecht and Gelderland quickly collapsed support for the ruling DeWitt faction, and William was there able to push them out the door. The young Captain General gained a reputation of martial valor, for his defense of the waterline. As his uncle, Charles II's agent, the Duke of Buckingham, insisted, if he continued his opposition, that he would, quote, see the end of the Dutch Republic, William responded, quote, there is one certain means by which I can be sure never to see my country's ruin. I will die defending in the last ditch. Later in the summer, William made public a letter from Charles declaring directly that it was the action of the DeWitt brothers that had led him to attack. It was shortly after that letter came out the DeWitt brothers got invited to their little Dutch barbecue. Mm -hmm. And yes, I'm going to take every opportunity to mention that they ate the DeWitts because I mean, what the hell man? They ate them. They ate those guys. The guys got ate. (laughs) After that, the war improved for the Dutch. And as William pushed the French out, he was rewarded by being made Stadtholder of the various provinces. And some of the provinces even offering him additional hereditary titles, which he declined to his credit. He marries his cousin Mary, James II's daughter, in 1677 and works a delicate diplomatic game courting English friendship against the French, then Protestant favor within England against the rising Catholic elements of his father-in-law. William and Parliament engage in what is essentially a long-distance job interview in which the Dutch stadtholder demonstrates that his conception of monarchy is compatible with the prerogatives of Parliament. In 1687, William publishes an open letter denouncing James's usurpation of powers and his intent to Romanize England. The next year, seven English notables reply in a letter to J- William. It's basically a do you like us, circle yes or no type situation. And he yes. wrote in, yes, maybe. Stating, the people are so generally dissatisfied with the present contact of the government in relation to their religion, liberties, and properties, all which have been greatly invaded, and they are in such expectation of their prospects being daily worse, that your highness may be assured there are 19 parts of 20 of the people throughout the kingdom who are desirous of change and who, we believe, would willingly contribute to it if they had such a protection to countenance their rising as would secure them from being destroyed. They're basically saying, if you come, we will back your play. Yes. In October of 1688, William issues his Declaration of the Hague, which states, It is both certain and evident to all men that the public peace and happiness of any state or kingdom cannot be preserved 
where the laws, liberties, and customs established by the lawful authority in it are openly transgressed and annulled, that the inhabitants of the said state or kingdom may neither be deprived of their religion nor of their civil rights. The godly merchants of England had found a monarch they could work with. This guy gets it. This guy gets it. And so it is that on November 5th, 1688, William III of Orange lands his ship at Brixham. The motto of the House of Nassau was, Je maintendrai, I will maintain. And William declares, for the liberties of England and the Protestant religion, I will maintain. The revolution of 1688 is glorious because it is so easy. James's authority and support begins to immediately dissolve with mass defections of Protestant commanders to William's cause. Any resistance evaporated as William marched to London. James was allowed to escape London for France on December 18th, the same day William entered the city to cheering crowds. So there was a continuation of the conflict in Ireland mm-hmm. where the Catholic forces rallied around the king and, and James eventually goes to Ireland mm-hmm. and commands an army which is defeated famously at the Battle of the Boyne. Yes. Uh, which determines the fate of Ireland and which is still a fought after event mm-hmm. in Irish uh, Northern Irish history. But other than that, on the continent, on the on the islands themselves, it is essentially just a turnover, a handing over of the keys. Yes, there's like one company of dragoons encountered somewhere between Cornwall and London, and for they fight for like an hour. And other than that, yeah, he just walks in, walks in, and gets in the driver's seat. Yep. Uh, a convention parliament was called in January, which incidentally uh, included Isaac Newton as nerd. one of its members. Fucking nerd. Um. Who was pissed at James for the attempt to re-Catholicize the educational institutions. Of, We're trying of, to illuminate something here, yes, asshole. We, We're trying to get some fucking alchemy going here. Could you please get out of our light? Yes. So that's why he was uh, in favor of the Glorious Revolution. Um, after some deliberation about how to resolve the secession, it was decided that by fleeing the country, James had effectively abdicated the throne. And the crown was offered jointly to William and his wife, Mary II Stuart. With the crown, William and Mary accepted a series of compromises, including limits on standing armies without consent of Parliament, and a Declaration of Rights, later codified into a Bill of Rights, which formally acknowledged the crown ruled with the consent of the people and Parliament. Within two years of claiming the throne, William would oversee the creation of the Bank of England, chartered to raise funds for the building of a navy that would finally be capable of dominating France and the high seas. The bank's founders, the elite of the emergent North Atlantic financial class, bought bonds issued by the government in exchange for the exclusive right to issue banknotes backed by the government's promise to repay the bonds. This is the mechanism, a national currency powered by the ceaseless churn of a perpetual government debt that would crack open the world economy. The British pound, backed by gold lended interest, would conjure into being a globe-bestriding navy, provide the investment capital to spark an industrial revolution, and install the United Kingdom as hegemon of an emerging capitalist world system. An outcome that no observer of the conditions of Europe at the time of the Reformation could have imagined possible. So this then, dear listener, is where we end our story of this era. From Martin Luther with a pen and parchment and hammer and nail in 1517, to a Calvinist Dutch prince accepting a civil bill of rights in London in 1688. We propose to you that the chaos and tragedy of Europe, from the Reformation through the Thirty Years' War, the English Civil War, and now the Glorious Revolution, 
had succeeded in producing in the Dutch a sovereign who had the social and political context necessary to take control of the unstable British monarchy. And through this leveraged takeover of the English crown by William III, create a state machine capable of tying all the threads of economic, social, and political development together into a single system that could become capitalism. And then, of course, a continent whose institutions had been purged of the confessional ideology that had defined it previously and readied to accept a new god of the market as a spiritual guide. Matt, please take us home. Without the conscious intent of any individual or a group of individuals, the British Isles had birthed a political and social superstructure that would be uniquely capable of channeling the energies unleashed by the economic transformation spurred into overdrive by the crisis of the 17th century. And the very things that made Great Britain such an unlikely continental hegemon before the crisis were exactly what ensured its ascendancy afterward. The British Isles are a damp collection of rocks off the coast of Western Europe. For most of the Middle Ages, the English economy was entirely beholden to a single export of raw wool. The work of turning wool into fabric was largely done in the more sophisticated cities on the continent. It was big and remote enough to resist foreign domination after being claimed by the Normans, but poorer than the more verdant lands and trade networks to their south. England was the middling power among the competing middling powers of Western Europe. Europe's geography had made the reimposition of centralizing empire after the fall of Rome impossible. The Holy Roman Empire was the last vestige of that project from within. Powers outside of Europe, from the Mongols to the Ottomans, similarly failed to assert control of the continent. That left medium-sized dynasties in a perpetual struggle for influence and power. And the most perpetually struggling of them all wore the English crown. The English monarchy was forged by the internal and external pressure of asserting control on the British Isles and defending English interests against their cousins across the Channel. The Tudors were able to concentrate political authority around the crown long before similar transformations occurred elsewhere. Henry VIII's reforms put the vast wealth as well as the political power that both reflected and affirmed that wealth of the Catholic Church in the king's hands. The size of these holdings dwarfed anything that a petty German Lutheran prince could ever lay his greasy mitts on. The landowning class of England had purchased most of that church land from the king, essentially trading their political influence for guaranteed revenue streams. The landowners agreed to this in part because the existence of Parliament provided an institutional lever of political influence that they would not let go of. But the king and Parliament could not prevent landowners from competing with each other for increased power and wealth in the countryside. And in that struggle, the landowners of England were able to access a unique array of weapons. They began a process that would take generations to reach the continent, cultivating economic power outside of the political context. Feudalism recognized no distinction between the two, but these precarious quarreling nobles were forced to invent one. This led to a landowner push to increase the agricultural productivity of their peasant tenants, who had mostly won their freedom from serfdom and paid their lords in cash or kind rent rather than as free labor on their lords' personal property. Squeezing the tenants involved first the enclosure of common lands that sustained peasant autonomy. Now this weakened the peasant bargaining position relative to their landlords while filling the landlord's coffers by providing grazing land for sheep to feed that wool trade. Peasants were forced to increase their productivity to pay the rents that were now being sent by a market rather than fixed in a feudal contract. Enterprising peasants exploited themselves more 
in order to avoid eviction, and if they were lucky enough, buy land of their own. They were aided in their task by innovations in agricultural production that had been tried and perfected in England's Irish plantations, where native smallholders had been displaced from their lands and turned into farm laborers for English and Scottish settlers. This is another area where geography favored English ascendancy. The presence of a smaller, poorer, less populated island off England's coast gave England crown and nobility in the 12th century, a laboratory for exploitation that wouldn't be accessible to other European powers until the discovery of the New World. Mm -hmm. The least productive peasants lost their land and entered into wage relationships as farm labor in the countryside or by migrating to cities to work for some master. These landless workers no longer made their own clothes or grew their own food. They needed to purchase these things, and their consumer demand created the first internal market in Europe. Continental trade at that point had been trade mostly between geographically and politically distinct polities, Baltic grain for Dutch cheese and such. This was English wool and meat being sold in English markets to English workers, this process also spawning an exploding class of urban merchants to facilitate it. The trauma and scarcity of the 17th century environmental crisis pushed both these groups, the workers and bourgeois of the growing cities of England, which is primarily London, which mm -hmm. dwarfs all others, into violent opposition to the monarchy. The Stuarts had access to an administrative apparatus of overweening power, but in the process of building it, had created as a byproduct new classes of people mm -hmm. with economic interests that were in direct conflict with the interests of the crown and who were able to organize that economic interest into revolutionary political power. When these forces challenged Stuart authority, Charles I was unable to recognize how the form of political authority had changed beneath his feet. The Stuarts' resistance to this process threw them from the saddle of power to be replaced by a new dynasty that had been formed by the experience of collaboration with the bourgeois revolution rather than violent resistance to one. But the reason we didn't just make a podcast about the English Civil War and the English Revolution is that none of this could have happened in England if not for the revolution in social values that began in Germany and which defined a century and a half of apocalyptic continental conflict. The Reformation and the wars that followed shattered the structures that had previously constrained the development of independent economic power in Europe. It is a necessary precondition for the transformation of political legitimacy that allowed this economic power to be politically exercised. And the Reformation could not have started in England. When Luther started his printing press war with the Catholic Church, more English-language books were published in Antwerp than in London. Mm -hmm. English reform movements like the Lollards had been stymied by lack of a print economy or culture. Central Germany, with its prosperous trading cities strung like pearls along the shores of the Rhine and the Elbe, with its thriving publishing industry, fueled by demand for, among other things, religious indulgences, was the only place a critique like Luther's could gain so much social legitimacy so quickly. Because it was the only place that had Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. And where did it gain social legitimacy? The cities, which everywhere in Europe were being increasingly defined by the laboring and merchant classes. The petty princes of northern Germany were compelled by their own competition with each other and the Holy Roman Emperor to use Luther's critique to their own ends. And in a way, Henry VIII is just the greatest of these petty princes. If the Tudors had been more securely on the throne or England more secure in its relations to its neighbors, Henry VIII would have been as stout an opponent of Luther's heresy as Charles V was. Conversely, capitalism could not have been established in the fractious environs of the Holy Roman Empire. It needed a larger and more stable incubator. The story of capitalism is both the creation of a mode of production and also the creation of a social world that surrounds it and, to use the words of Obi-Wan Kenobi, penetrates it. <laughs> Currents of technology, geography, culture, and politics rippled across the continent, colliding with each other 
amplifying each other's energy until they all came together in an all-powerful, all-consuming wave. The violence that defined the next century and a half was being compelled by the frantic effort of all segments of European society attempting to secure themselves in conditions of crisis. But the social world that sustained that violence was one of religious apocalypse, of Christ and Antichrist, at battle for the soul of all Christians. This conflict broke up stagnant feudal social arrangements throughout Northern and Western Europe in all the ways we've cataloged throughout this show. Increasingly across the continent in the aftermath of Westphalia, political decisions were being made by an urban merchant class who were consecrating the market as the realm where God's will was revealed. To thrive in the market was to be favored by God, and anything that it took to thrive in the market was therefore sanctioned by God. Life became not something to enjoy, but to invest in. Abstract value replaced incarnate value. This was John Calvin's contribution, and the most fervently mobilized bourgeois of the 17th century would be Calvinists of one stripe or another. The Calvinists of Switzerland were able to wrest control of their city-states from the vestiges of feudal overlordship. The Calvinists of the Netherlands were able to gain their independence from Spanish rule. The Calvinists of the Palatinate were able to plunge Germany into 30 years of wasteful bloodshed that destroyed the zone of meaningful bourgeois politics in Central Europe. In Central Europe. <laughs> Good job, Palatinate Calvinists. Way to go, guys. But the Calvinists of England, able to operate a machine of merchant political power centuries in the making redefine their relationship to the sovereign royal authority in a way that would give them unprecedented freedom to do what had to be done to advance their own and England's interests. The key to England's victory would be her colonies, where the hyper-exploitation of enslaved Africans and the expropriation of native lands would provide capital and calories to the various classes of Britain. Social conflict in Britain, which would otherwise have threatened the stability of the state, was discharged by the vent of American emigration. Those who didn't wish to witness the death throes of the very idea of Christendom could move to a land where they could meet each other once again as strangers. Now, Scotland, which at this point is uh, finally dominated by England, Mm -hmm. but on a condition of equal citizenship, ends up providing the brains and brawn for England's colonial and industrial body. The Scottish Enlightenment is key Mm -hmm. to the creation of the structures that will generate the Industrial Revolution which is facilitated by engineers largely of Scottish extraction, and the non-commissioned officer class of the British Army that conquers the globe is made up of doughty Scotsmen. And another thing that ends up fueling English hegemony and favoring England is fuel, literal fuel. Mm -hmm. So we got to chalk this one up to God being an Englishman. And as we've covered before, a Protestant. I mean, God is a Protestant, and what kind of Protestant? He's clearly English, because at the very moment that the English are uh, essentially cutting down the last... Uh, truffle a tough. <laughs> they, they, they have hung, drawn, and quartered the Lorax. At this very moment that they risk of, of running out of timber fuel, mm-hmm. they discover and unveil vast seams of coal that f- give them a, a energy advantage over everybody else on the continent because the f- deforestation had been threatening to put a rough Malthusian cap on British economic development. And this coal allows them to uh, sidestep that. And so, rather than capitalism being seated in the birthplace of its social vocabulary, Germany, it becomes headquartered in England, administered by a state that emerged from the mid-century convulsions that racked the rest of Europe. As the Westphalian states competed with each other in the context defined by English domination, they unleashed their own bourgeois, who pushed to make capitalist social relations mandatory across all classes. European capitalism would never be stable, and 300 years after the defenestration of Prague, the continent would be racked with industrial war on a scale previously unimaginable. 
and which would last on and off for 30 years itself. In the United States, the waves of emigration of those fleeing the social trauma of European capital formation created a political and religious world that neutralized that feudal hangover of Western civilization with the cure-all of free real estate. A new god would be birthed from the ritual sacrifice of the new world, one wearing a mask with a million faces that all reflect a single graven image, the naked self-interest of the Western individual. The United States would replace England at the end of the Second Thirty Years' War as global hegemon and extend capitalism to the entire world, a world which now sits at the very same confluence of crisis of climate change, political stagnation, cultural polarization, and economic exhaustion that define the crisis of the 17th century. And that's where we have to end this, where the horizon of the 17th century meets the horizon of the 21st. Because if there's one thing most common to all humans throughout all of our recorded history, it's this. It's always the end of the world. People right now, here in 2023, recognize the world faces a set of interlocking and escalating structural crises. Hell, as I sit here and finish writing the final script of this series, I'm seeing a news item that the main word coming out of the annual meeting of our financial and political elites at Davos, safely ensconced in those same Swiss Alps that helped birth Calvinism, is polycrisis. For many people, Our awareness of the crisis that we're in creates an apocalyptic mindset, a palpable sense that things are ending in a permanent and catastrophic way. And it's true that the scale of the crises we face today, the economic fallouts of globalization, the potentially irreversible effects of anthropogenic climate change, social dysfunction of mass communications and mass media, sclerotic political institutions on the top of the most powerful state capacities the world has ever seen are all unique to our modern moment. But that feeling was absolutely shared by the people of this story, of the Thirty Years' War, of the 17th century. They put it in religious terms, in a language that we've largely shed from our civil political discourse. But the same understanding of the precarious structural nature of their moment still existed and was transmitted socially and politically. It was a horrifying disaster that befell these people. But while they experienced it as a religious apocalypse, below their ability to recognize it at the time, New structures were being built. They were building new structures, ones whose ramifications and impacts they couldn't possibly conceive of at the time, but structures that would create new accommodations and new mechanisms to meet their changing world. New arrangements and understandings that would survive their apocalypse and allow humans to survive, even if the world would be unrecognizable. And it's important to remember that that's also happening now. Even if it's impossible to observe or predict, or maybe even experience, we are in the process of building new structures, new technology, new modes of thought and social life that are going to persist in the face of however our crises unfold. And that is not meant to be either optimistic or nihilistic or fatalistic. It's not to say, oh, don't worry about climate change. We'll figure something out. We always do. Fear is not irrational and hope is not impossible. Our futures are always changeable. Our destinies are never written. And there are always moments of surprising, unpredictable contingency in which those willing to fight for it can exert massive influences on the world. Both doom and paradise are possible. But whichever it is, we're building it now, and we don't even know it. But there will be more of us there who will inherit a world 
we can't imagine. If you feel like you're living through the end of the world, you are, because it's always the end of the world. And at the same time, the birth of something new. was written by Matt Chrisman and Chris Wade. It was produced by me, Chris Wade, with editing from our co-producer, Nick Quaz. Show art and animation is from the great Ben Clarkson, and you can find a supplemental interactive atlas for the series by John White over at hellonearth.chapotraphouse.com. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds, with additional music in this episode by Alessandro Takeshi, Blackout Princess, Austin Riley, John Ahrens, Frederick Scrafone, Tyrant King, and Wagner Coop. This is the end of the narrative portion of this series. Thank you all so much for listening. But fear not, we have seven bonus episodes featuring interviews with guest experts on specific thematic topics we wanted to dive into some more. So join us next week when we'll be talking about daily life during this era, here on Hell on Earth. <laughs>